everybody. You're listening to The Big Jill Podcast. This is episode 316, Keeping Track with Bernard Legat and Abdi Abdurrahman. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. We've got a really good episode for you guys. We have interview with two five-time Olympians in Bernard Legat and Abdi Abdurrahman. And we'll, we'll do that a little later, but first, it was the opening weekend of the Premier League, as well as a new episode of Ted Lasso. So where, where do you guys want to start? Well, I would prefer that the intro had instead been framed as, on this podcast, we will average two Olympic visits each, <laughs> and we'll just frame it that way <laughs> over the course of the five people who at some point make an appearance on the podcast. And that's that's yep. the positive, you know, in the interview itself, they talk about the need for a positive mindset during a challenging moment. And from now on, that will be my mindset for this evening. <laughs> So I but guess positive mindset, we don't want to talk Ted about Lasso. Arsenal. <laughs> let's start with Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso the, the man sounds who, like a really good place okay. to start. The man who embodies <laughs> a positive mindset. So for those who haven't watched the newest episode of Ted Lasso, there is a spoiler alert coming. So actually, it's really not a big spoiler episode. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, if you're going to watch it, we're still going to spoil it. I know, it. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, but, sk- skip ahead 15 minutes if you haven't watched the episode yet. But yeah, point taken that it's not really giving much or adding much to the series. So well, I, I thought Ted Lasso did the thing that I've been waiting my whole life for a television series to do, which is I've always wanted to be in mid-August and have the Christmas episode of a TV show I love come out. That's what that's what my viewing has been missing. It's so warped at the moment. So opening game, they have the penalty save or something like that. Then they just skipped eight. And then they have like two episodes where I'm pretty sure it happened between game. Now they're in Christmas. <laughs> like but, we're half the season in. Like, And I've seen one penalty. It, it was a full on Christmas episode. Like, it's not just the episode. This is not a diehard episode. Christmas just didn't happen to take place during the episode itself. This was a Christmas episode. And they must have known when the show was going to come out. I know that last time around, the show kind of came out close to the Christmas period. This time around, they knew this episode was going to air in August. It just is a little bit weird to me. I don't think I could have, I would have enjoyed that episode a whole lot more if it had been coming out in even November, I could have taken it. But the fact yeah. that I'm watching it in mid August in boiling heat, I'm not really in the mood to watch someone put Christmas decorations up. I, I mean, you, you, you really took exactly what I was going to say about this episode. I mean, I, as a, if you were to critique this as a Christmas episode, you know, because this is kind of a tradition a lot of TV shows do is they have their Christmas episode or their Thanksgiving episode, you know, as a Christmas episode, it was a really good Christmas episode. You know, it had, it had a good feel to it. It had some jokes. It had a lot of stuff going on, you know, good, good positive vibes. But 
I just couldn't get into it enough when as soon as the episode's over, I look out and it's about 105 degrees with the sun shining. You know, like they almost had me for half an instant like, oh, I got a Christmas feeling. And then it's like, no, wait, it's August. This is nowhere near Christmas. And maybe that was a COVID thing. I don't know. You know, maybe it would have been released at a different time. Maybe this was either sped up or pushed back. It couldn't have been because the only the last series (laughs) – came out like fairly recently right we're not talking about yeah so they would have known all along either the only way this could have been mixed up is if they thought it was going to come out the series was going to air in november december so that's what i mean maybe they pushed it up because apple had nothing else because of covid and this was already done apple never has anything else apple tv (laughs) is ted lasso it's ted lasso mankind it has Ted Lasso, and it relentlessly continues to push on me that Tom Hanks movie that I've already watched on Apple TV. But every time oh, I watch... Greyhound, Grey- Eddie, you've got to watch Greyhound again to really appreciate <laughs> I've it. I've already watched Greyhound. It wasn't great. I don't need to see it a second time. But every time I log on to Apple TV, it's like, hey, how about this one movie we made? <laughs> oh, no, how about any of... No, no, we've not made any other movies. Just watch Greyhound again, please. I always, I always find the Christmas, like the seasonal episodes, a bit of a... A bit of a cop-out. I don't know why. I just think nothing happened in this episode that advanced anything that was already being discussed. And I just think that you can do whatever you want in this isolation of like a single episode, a seasonal episode. And it just, it it was really momentum jarring in an already season that I'm not fantastically like over, over keen on at the moment. Like also none of the, storylines really kind of struck with me either like when they're going to try and sort out her bad breath that you just go on the internet and look for a dentist i don't know yeah, what no, that, knocking, that really bothered doors. me that we're gonna like, go knock I on don't doors understand yeah it, i've i've never been a huge fan of seasonal ones that are just isolated episodes if it's a continuation of the season and they've showed the i don't know they showed the boxing day game as well and it showed them advancing the team I, I, I really don't mind them. Um, but this one was just, yeah, it just felt like a complete and isolation episode. And I wasn't, wasn't a huge fan of it at all. And actually, you know, that's Do you both of-, of you guys don't get it, though. It was an ode to love. Actually, they knock on door to door like Hugh Grant does in the movie. And then at the end, she does the sign thing no, I, like the guy does in Love Actually. Frank, it's I, definitely a call out to Love Actually. No, I, yeah, Frank, I, I got fine. that. They, they drilled that over my head by slapping each one of those boards over it as the as the episode ended if i got that it was a love actually reference it was impossible to miss it's just i don't know again if on the list of things that i thought ted lasso was missing a love actually reference was not on that list so you know so far we're checking off boxes as we progress through this season didn't need a sarcastic 13 year old didn't need a storyline about a a seven-year-old with bad breath you know, there's a few things going on here. And again, really enjoy the show. But it just, it's its missing more than it's hitting in season two. But, and also I feel like part of me also thinks if you were going to do a Christmas episode, maybe incorporate an aspect of the Christmas culture of British football, like the Boxing Day match or something. And it just seems like a missed opportunity in a show that does an off kind of, Try and stay, not realistic, but try and sort of give maybe American viewers more of an insight into what football culture might be a little bit like. And then you have skipped over 
the biggest aspect of being a footballer at Christmas. And they talk about going light on it, and then they go to what's-his-name's house, and then just drinking copious amounts of alcohol when they're obviously <laughs> going to play a match 24 hours later. Which yeah, can we also say? Mention it. Can they we say one other? Th- yeah, they it. say they're doing a half day on Christmas so that they can all go and celebrate. Can we also say his house is not nearly nice enough for someone who has been holding a senior position yes. for a Premier League football club? One hundred percent. That the kind of house that they're showing is not of a footballer Premier League Championships pay grade massively. So he's either been really underpaid even though she's completely changed her ethos and approach to his um, appointment. No, 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 I'm not talking about... No, 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 I'm not talking about Ted Lasso. You're not talking about Higgins. I'm talking about Higgins. No, I'm talking about Higgins. No, no, no. Ted Lasso is one thing, because he's like renting his house. You know, who knows? He's just picked a place that's convenient, and he's renting it. I can buy that he's just living in a nice but smallish flat in Richmond, and, you know, is going home at the summer or whatever. You You can create the story for me where that's his life. But Higgins, he's got a, how many? Four children? Three children? Uh, five? five There's five of them in the house. Five There's of them. A family of five in the and, house. And he's living in this, not a bad house. I'm, I mean, I'd happily move in there. But he's been a senior figure in a Premier League football club. He must be earning quite a decent amount of money. And yet, you know, you look at it and he comes across as a distinctly middle class, this is my house. I just have a table for six people. Get out the ironing board because we're more than six. You know, it just seemed a little bit odd. But uh, better, but not amazing. Yeah, I, I I thought it was good. I think, I think the issue we're all having is they're making this show as if it's a sitcom comedy, like an old school one like The Office that has... 20 episodes a season where they have the time to have multiple main characters whereas it's only a 10 episode show here and we're barely getting any Ted Lasso because we're you know on this character and this character and this character for 10 episodes of 30 minutes if you want the show to be about Ted Lasso he has to he has to dominate the screen time you know because otherwise you know, the office was really good because they had Michael and they had Pam, and they had Jim, but they had 20 plus episodes to, you know, have a few episodes about them and a few episodes about them. But you really don't have that here. And what it feels like is you're just stretching it out so much. And it's already almost half the season's already done. And it feels like nothing's really happened. You haven't advanced any of the characters very much. And I, I, I think that's kind of what they're trying to do is they're trying to give too many characters screen time, which I understand because, you know, Roy Kent is the best character on the show and it's not the Roy Kent show. It's the Ted Lasso show. But I mean, you can't really do that. If it's a Ted Lasso show, it should be about Ted Lasso. Well, you know, for a a show that is kind of about sports, they're maybe showing us a problem that is common amongst successful sports teams, which is what Pat Riley coined as the disease of more. And that is after a little bit of success, Everyone just turns their attentions to themselves. And he obviously used that in his book, Showtime, when he spoke about the 1980 Lakers and how as soon as they won that title, everyone became much more selfish. And maybe what we're suffering from here is season one, it got the, yeah, here in comes the big star from America to make this TV show. And we're fine with him just stealing every scene and basically this just being 
all about him. And then now season t- two comes along and it's like, yeah, but people liked my character when I had my two and a half minutes last season. How about I have 25 minutes this season? What could possibly go wrong? You're, you're probably right with that. I, I think some of the misses I'm getting at the moment is that I think it was episode four in the first season when Ted and the coach, can never remember the name, have that nice moment in the pub where coach, they clink their coach beers. Beard. Yeah. Where they, where they clink the pint glasses after the realization that he's going to be getting a divorce, basically. And it was a really, really good moment. And they had a similar opportunity with this one when obviously he gets off the phone with his kid and he starts drinking, basically. I was like, okay, there could be a moment here that is similar in in terms of its like kind of poignancy to the story and then he just opens his window and he's like oh yeah let's go do something and at one point then offers to drive <laughs> like that's, that's illegal if you've just necked <laughs> half a bottle of whiskey but you know that's fine <laughs> I, I just think it's missing a lot of the nice moments or sad moments from the previous one everything is just too artificial now and fake I, I that's how I feel about it at the moment. I'm not... I must admit, this episode made me start to not enjoy it. It feels just way wow. more American. It feels way more American to me. Now I feel like season one felt like almost as if they'd managed to slip an English TV show onto American TV. And this now feels like the reverse has happened to me. They've made me watch an American sitcom that I otherwise would not have watched. And it's... They've snuck it in. They've Trojan horsed an uh, sort of unfunny American sitcom into my weekly viewing habits. Well, I guess moving on from the fake Premier League to the real start of this season, do you guys have any first weekend takeaways, big big talking points? Nope. <laughs> 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 I mean, there's two, right? There's two big ones. You, you can, we can, for the most part, everything went to form. The teams you expected to look good looked pretty good. Chelsea looked good. United looked good. Liverpool looked good. So all of those teams did what you would have hoped to see for teams that think that they might just be able to put together a title challenge. Admittedly, none of them were facing. I mean, United Leeds was a potentially difficult test, but we also discussed the fact that Leeds blow very hot and cold. I'm not going to change my what I think about Leeds based on that, because I just think they blew cold. United played well, but Leeds just had one of those games where they can't defend, and they concede goals for fun sometimes. And But the big storylines, obviously Arsenal looking really quite poor. Now they were missing a lot of important players. So the Arsenal that we'll see three or four weeks from now is very different to the one that we saw on Friday night. And then also City losing to Spurs and again you can there's the same caveat City were missing almost all of their superstars still a very good team out on the pitch but you know defensively I think three of the four players who will start at the back were missing and then on top of it you're missing Kevin De Bruyne who came on as a substitute but he is really the player who makes them tick when they are playing at their very best my takeaways from that was, I don't think my expectations for anyone has changed. I don't think City are any more vulnerable than I thought. Spurs are good at hitting them on the break. 
City are vulnerable on the break. They'll be less vulnerable when they have a full-strength team out there. It just, if I was even a little bit unsure of the thought that Harry Kane was going to join City, that to me absolutely sealed it. Because A, the fact that he wasn't visible, that he wasn't sitting on the Spurs bench, that he wasn't able to be found in the stadium, meant that he, clearly he just doesn't want to be seen, so he's out the door mentally. And then B, the fact that if City had thought, gone into the season thinking, well, maybe we can get by without a goal scorer, and then they watched that match and saw, no, we really need a goal scorer, I think the he's gone. Yeah, I think even City have now upped their the potential limit that they've got, I think they're looking at now like 127 or something like that, uh, at Euros, so what's that, like 115 or something. But yeah, the um, I, I guess the... I'll start with Arsenal. <laughs> so for me, okay, Aubameyang, Lacassette, this illness that apparently they, were, they weren't fit, I, I appreciate can disrupt plans, but... Arsenal looked all over the shop where the classic Arsenal really when a team pressures and you've got to know that Brentford were going to do that in the opening game for the first time in what over 70 years in the top flight of course they're going to bring pressure and there's going to be a real tenacity about the way they play and Arsenal just capitulated with it um I, I thought defensively Arsenal looked really bad um which again one game I'm not going to overreact or anything like that but the only small snippets that I thought were pretty good is Saka looked okay when he came on Smith Rowe looked good but yeah um, it's a bit of a worrying start considering Arsenal have now got City and Chelsea next and okay let's just say three points out of nine if you had beaten Brentford but suddenly you've got three losses potentially considering you know Chelsea look really good and City are just a better team so that worries me a little bit, is that Arsenal might just have a bad start, unfortunately. And I think they did need something from that game, or at least a very good performance. And I don't think they put it in at all. How much, credit to Brentford. How much pressure do you think Arteta will be under if they go into the international break with zero points on the board? Um, I think the fans will put him under a lot of pressure. I don't think the board will. But the interesting thing about Arteta is he actually doesn't play that badly against the big teams. I'm not saying they're going to get points, but... Well, bad news, Sam. Arteta's retired. He's not playing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, in his management, he's actually done pretty well against um, the bigger six. Uh, he's got a pretty good record against them. But uh, anyway, um, I'd, I think the fans will put him under way more pressure. Uh, the rumours are that Arsenal are going to sign three more players in the window. Uh, Erdegaard looks like one of them. I, I, I haven't really seen many rumours about the others. But yeah. That's my opinion of Arsenal. But credit to Brentford, to be honest. They outplayed Arsenal, and it was a kind of a really good start to their season. And hey, um, also credit, right? One of their goals came from a long throw-in uh, from a, uh, you know, from th little mention to former podcast guest Thomas Gronemark, who worked on throw-ins with that particular Brentford player. So, you know, wow. the, big, the Big Chill podcast has a very, very small hand in that goal. Yeah. We should have tipped Arsenal. that. Yeah. With our inside Arsenal. knowledge. All right, Sam, this isn't Arsenal. an Arsenal podcast. I'm sorry. You're done. Yeah, we've had enough. Oh, no, I, you're, no, done. Was, no, you're done. No, you're done. No, you're done. We've got it. Bad start. I, Probably won't I get think better. You're, I think you're absolutely right about City. I think that game sealed the deal. I don't understand with Son's goal what happened to Diaz. <laughs> like how he just kind of capitulated or like looked like he got shot. 
it, I think it threw off. Look, I, I the keeper Guardiola is a, a an incredible manager and a brilliant tactician, and the impact he's had on world football is tremendous. Right over his time at the the three clubs he's managed, I don't know if Guardiola could pick a a, a talented defender though. I mean, he spent so much on defenders at City, and for the most part, they're absolute donkeys. And it's just hard for me. I mean, they line up, even when they are resting players, the sort of combined worth of their sort of back four is is always at least 150 million pounds. And then you watch them, and I mean, Nathan Ake, if Blackburn signed him tomorrow, I wouldn't be excited. He is average. I mean, the only thing going for him is that he's obviously getting severely overpaid and he will retire with winner's medals that he played no part in winning. But he is, I mean, just awful. And you can just see the impact it has on everything. Ederson becomes much less sure of himself. You can see that immediately at corners and set pieces. Suddenly he's a very good goalkeeper and now he just doesn't know... Should he should he stay? Should he go? What's he doing? Where is he positioning himself? What's he going to do from certain you know certain situations? It, they need a goal scorer, but as we touched on in the season preview, they need they need defend they need their defenders fit. They need Kyle Walker fit. They need Laporte in there. They need Stones in there. Otherwise, they're just too vulnerable at the at the back. So, was there any other takeaways you had from the Premier League? In terms of like the other games, you know, there was a really good game, Newcastle-West Ham. Did you see the Villa game? Were there any sort of week one overreactions that you've got? Or? I watched I watched West Ham-Newcastle. Uh, maybe Newcastle can feel a little bit hard done by. I'm not sure if that third goal was a penalty. Um, and I think in previous, the, if that had been last year, VAR I think would have overturned it. But now that they are taking that interpretation we saw in the Euros where they're only going to step in if they think it's an egregious error um but newcastle didn't look good i said adam armstrong couldn't score in the premier league it took him about 15 minutes <laughs> it's a nice finish <laughs> it, it look i'll say this about adam armstrong his weaknesses are one-on-ones his finishes that one-on-one i just don't know if yeah, it looks that one looks good, but it's not far off missing. And no, it's a beautiful top bin finish. Yeah. But if that sky's over, it's so a calamitous. Bin. He didn't make. I me can't think, wait to sign him to my fantasy league. He didn't. <laughs> he, he didn't make me think that his one-on-one finishing has necessarily improved. It's just this one happened to be mishit just perfectly. I I think yeah, it was a classic Newcastle performance for me. It was one of those like where they get a bit of hope, they get a bit of momentum and then do something defensively that just completely jars it. Um, so, yeah, I don't think Newcastle look good. I worry a little bit for Villa. I, I, I think um, they showed a, a pretty poor shape without Grealish, I think. They didn't know where to go. They kept going to the wings and it was just being stopped by Watford very easily. Um, I really fear for Norwich. Like, it wasn't just that Liverpool looked really good, but Norwich just looked really poor in terms of shape and um, getting back into shape as well when Liverpool, like, stole possession or started to counter. I, I think they looked, this weekend, I'd say they looked the worst team that I saw. Um, so it makes me worry for them more. 
Um, other than that, pretty uneventful games like Brighton, Burnley. But yeah, it's hard to draw over reactions, right? Like you say, City have actually gone to Spurs Stadium, not scored a goal and lost every time they've gone. So four times. The other challenging teams convincingly won their games. All the teams in mid-table kind of beat each other or put in performances against each other. And the teams that we said were going to be down the bottom, like Norwich, put in pretty poor performances. So Yeah, but we all picked Watford to, to finish bottom and they kicked the, they kicked the season off with and three points. And they did win. That, that's so, true. I guess yeah. that would be the surprising one. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I wasn't stunned by anything that happened. And I'm now going to overreact to, to one week of football. I'll wait till the international break is when my overreactions start to come in. So two more two more match days between now and then. So speaking of overreactions, I think there's no better place to overreact than week one of preseason NFL, where players aren't playing, teams don't care, and coaches are just trying to keep their players from getting injured. But we did see the first official appearance of a lot of high-profile quarterbacks that were drafted in this year's draft so I have I wrote down some of the numbers here so we had Mac Jones went 13 for 19 for 87 yards so a pretty bland performance Justin Fields probably had the performance of the week for the rookie QBs he went 14 for 20 with 140 yards and a TD pass so a pretty good performance and he looked well he was running out of the pocket, escaped some pressure, had some nice throws on the run. I'm, I'm glad Wilson he looked, Frank, I'm glad he looked well because I've been hearing rumors that he was a bit, bit sick. Super sick. So he's been sick I'm all glad he, He's been sick I'm all glad month. to improve he's, he's, he's looking healthy. Uh, Zach Wilson, 6 for 9 for 63 yards. Trevor Lawrence, obviously the number one pick, was 6 for 9 for 70 yards but had a rough start with a sack and a fumble. Uh, he did recover on his very first snap so that was I think a wake-up call for him and Trey Lance Eddie's wonderkin went for an 80-yard touchdown pass but overall his numbers were 5 out of 14 for 125 yards a TD and was sacked four times in the process so ouch a little up and down for all of them I think but um None of them are hurt, which I guess is a good thing. And none of them looked atrocious. Like in previous seasons, you had some that would go like one for eight. You know, that didn't really happen here. So so you're telling me I shouldn't read into the Bengals beating the Bucks? <laughs> like, no. You know what's an interesting fact I just saw? The, the Ravens haven't lost a preseason game in five years. That's kind of crazy. That's pretty and crazy. That's got, and look where that's got them. Maybe they should. Yeah, start that's leaving. genuinely kind of crazy, and also <laughs> interesting from a betting perspective because yeah. preseason games like they're always within like three points because obviously you just don't know who's going to play, how long they're going to play for. So if you were just if the if anyone listening, I guess if your only bet you ever want to place is just Ravens winning preseason games, probably the probably the safest move then. But no, eighteenth straight win. I genuinely do not care about the NFL preseason. I think you can read almost nothing into it. Players sometimes look bad, and then, you know, because they're not playing with the starters or they're not not playing against starters, who knows? Obviously, teams aren't even wanting to give away plays either, so you're you're seeing a reduced, very basic playbook with a combination of players who will feature and won't feature in the season. I genuinely... 
have zero interest. The only thing that has caught my eye out of the NFL preseason to f- so far are the two new rules that are getting a lot of attention. So one being the taunting penalty, which seems absurd in the way that it is going to be enforced this year, where basically any form of celebration that if you just glance at an opponent while celebrating, you're going to get a 15-yard penalty is ridiculous. And then also the defensive penalty that can be brought in for blocking, which is you're not allowed to block below the knees any player outside of the tight end box, which I have to say, as a Niners fan, with the offense that Shanahan, the run, the run game that Shanahan draws up, Niners are just going to run all over teams now because their blocking <laughs> schemes are so advanced. And you're going to have Kittle, who's one of the best blockers in the league. Now you can't block him below his knees once he takes a step to his right or a step to his left. Unstoppable. Just pencil in the Niners Super Bowl right now. Don't even need Trey Lance. Why, why the change? So I, I guess to both of those, why the change? Like, was there perceived to be too much taunting? Was, is there perceived to be too much injury risk from going below the knee? Well, the so taunting, like the, the taunting thing, Sam. You know what it's called. This isn't this isn't the National Football League. This is the No Fun League. So you know, <laughs> oh. there there has been actually a lot of pushback oh. on the taunting for sure. Like I saw because there was a really controversial Week One call about a guy who I think flexed after he had like a 15 yard run where he carried three yeah, it was guys the Lions, and then got the up Lions and running back. Yeah. And he got a taunting call for it. And there's been a lot of pushback saying, you, you know, come on, it's part of the game. It's what makes the game fun. But then it is the no fun league. So I guess that's, you know, part of the reason. I, I think it's just an image issue. They want to try and be, you know, super clean, I guess. I don't know. I don't have it, an issue with the taunting. It's tough. Like, there are certainly moments you watch NFL games where a player goes over the top and where that leads to issues later in the game or it just leads to needless pushing and shoving and, you know, that's why I get it, trying to crack down on those. And it's difficult to know where to draw the line because also, okay, I let him flex over him and then the other guy gets up and it starts escalating and I guess I should stop it when he flexes. I understand the, the difficulty there, but people are, need to be able to celebrate. And it's the NFL even went, you know, a few years ago when they allowed people to properly celebrate touchdowns, for example, it seemed as if they were embracing the idea of celebrations. And there's a real difference between a celebration and just outright taunting someone. They need to be smart enough. They need to empower the officials to use their judgment on the field to make that decision as to whether or not that was just a guy in the moment celebrating what he's just achieved versus that is someone who's trying to rub this in the face of an opponent. But as for the other rule, the blocking rule, I mean, it's just... Blocking below the knees is obviously dangerous, so they're just trying to crack down on on those on those types of injuries. But it does; it's another rule that is going to make that goes in favor of the offense, and is going to make offenses even more difficult to stop. Obviously, most of those rules changes have helped offenses in terms of the the pass game. This one's going to help them a lot in terms of the run game, and uh, it's I think you're you're going to see even more points put up this season which hey that's fun so I'm not going to complain but uh, definitely if I was a defensive coordinator or a defensive player it might annoy me slightly and I guess one other thing that Eddie and I both wanted to discuss because we had messaged each other off chat about watching this and seeing how it would unfold 
uh, is a sport we normally don't talk about, baseball, and the Field of Dreams game that was played. Sam, were you able to catch this? I heard about it, but no, I didn't catch the game. So long story short, they built a baseball stadium next to the baseball diamond that was in the movie Field of Dreams and had the Yankees versus the White Sox play. It was neat at some point. So I only watched the opening and then about the first inning or two. So the opening, they had the players come out of the the cornfields and they had the nice camera angles. You know, they put in a lot of prep work, obviously, to make it look cool. And it looked cool. But they also had Kevin Costner come out first, holding a baseball and kind of just roam around the outfield for 15 minutes, just kind of staring around. (laughs) And I, I don't know if it was genuine or was an act as if he's still the character of the movie because he seemed to care a little too much. Like I get it was a big movie for him and it, you know, was one of probably one of the more famous movies of his career at least. So I'm sure it means a lot to him as a movie. And he said so. He said it was like a small movie that ended up being like this kind of cult classic, you know, like sports movie. But still the way he was kind of meandering through the outfield staring into nowhere was a little <laughs> too much. And then he gave a speech, and the speech itself was also a little too much. It was a good speech, great speech, but just in the context of they're just playing a game in Iowa, like it, he, it made it sound like it was a little Frank, more than it was. Frank, first ever professional baseball game in Iowa. Come on, that's huge. But I, Symbolic. Look, I agree with you, and I thought it was cool, and I think they did a lot of things right, and I think overall baseball should embrace having more original games and doing things, gimmicks like this to get people to pay attention to baseball because fundamentally most people don't. And then even the people that do often don't until the playoffs come around or unless they're watching a handful of really big games over the course of the season. So I liked it as a gimmick. I thought they pulled it off pretty well. One thing I hated, they did the throwback uniforms. Take the Nike logo off the uniform. If you're going to do the throwback uniform, just Nike's got to eat it for one day and not have the the logo there. Just make me feel as if you are wearing an old-fashioned uniform and not a uniform made in China by a brand that was invented, it was created in 19, 1970s or whenever, whenever it came around. So that bit annoyed me a bit. Good game. I mean, they got the dream ending, so they yeah. got lucky there that they... Now, did you- did you see the stat of the game about the ending? That's vague enough that I could not, not tell you yes or no. <laughs> so Tim Anderson uh, for the White Sox hit the game-winning home run, and he was the fifth White Sox player to ever hit the game-winning home run off the Yankees, the first of which was Shoeless Joe Jackson. So that was a real full circle stat of Shoeless Joe Jackson being the first to ever do what this guy did and, you know, being on the field next to them throwing with uh, Kevin Costner 20 years ago. Yeah, that's a cool stat. Um, so they built the stadium in Iowa for this. Yeah, it wasn't really a stadium, but yeah, they, they built the, the diamond and then they had bleachers. I think it was 8,000 people in attendance, I think. 
So, and then they obviously put a lot of work into the setup that went into it in terms of the corn and coming out of it and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was specifically made for this. Seems like a lot of work. <laughs> you got people to talk about baseball. I mean, you look at it. It's look, the we're same talking idea. about it. <laughs> it's the same idea, you know, like and the NHL does it right. It's the same. You You need people who don't normally pay attention to pay attention. You do these gimmicks and suddenly everyone thinks, I don't like watching baseball when it's at Yankee Stadium, but I'll watch baseball if it's in a cornfield in Iowa. <laughs> That's <laughs> and there there you go. Someone paid attention for one day. The thing I think all, the, the only the only issue with baseball a little bit is that it does rely too much on a certain type of nostalgia, which is I think part of what's killing the sport. And so having it be Field of Dreams, which is a movie that's, you know, nearly 30 years old, which was also a movie that was in its very nature nostalgic when it came out. So it's a movie from 30 years ago that refers back to 100 years ago. And having that be the thing that this is what's going to get young people to pay attention to our sport, they might need to get some slightly more modern references in there or setups, but it was still cool. What about like basketball? Could they use that one? <laughs> yeah, I guess. You know what? I haven't seen that movie in forever, but I'm going to say that's probably not a movie that's aged well. <laughs> oh, there's probably some xenophobic or very politically incorrect. But I don't again, think yeah. I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out, the year it came out. So yeah, I maybe we do a rewatch and and decide whether or not it is acceptable in today's society. Before that, maybe you guys should actually watch the new Space Jam so we can discuss that because I have watched it now and I have some things to say. <laughs> All I ask is this: before I I will watch it and we can discuss it. But the only question I have: Space Jam two. Or the Mighty Ducks TV show. Just tell me which one is better in your opinion. No reasoning. Just rank one and two. The new Space Jam is better. Okay. That's at least mildly reassuring. Because if you put the Mighty Ducks TV show above it, I would not have watched. And here's the thing is, I think you know that. So you would have probably just Space Jam is better <laughs> yeah. just to get me to watch it. Oh, but now you've said it, he might just be tactical. Because I would honestly say that when we start talking about shows on this show they go downhill <laughs> like the first couple of mighty ducks were interesting we talked about them it went downhill no no no, no. sam 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 no. ted lasso no 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 i'm not going to take about i'm not going to take don't downhill. ever compare ted lasso to the new mighty ducks tv show and also don't get, we're not taking any responsibility for the disaster that was the mighty ducks tv show that's like saying you know the guy responsible for the hindenburg disaster was the person take, filming the video. I mean, it's... You nothing, don't know he wasn't. It's nothing <laughs> to do with us. There's a, there's could a modern... Could have been the perfect crime. There's a, there, that's a modern reference that baseball would love. But What, the Hindenburg disaster? Yeah. <laughs> but the, so they do a game where a blimp just kind of crashes down. Oh, on... no. Shouldn't say that because oh. there's blimps televising games. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, you got to remember in America, that's a big thing. So that's, that's oh yeah, but, that's yeah, not bad. my bad. Okay, yeah, okay. I'm not advocating for a national tragedy. I guess. I I don't know if the Goodyear blimp going down would be a national tragedy, but but yeah, it certainly. Well, if wouldn't. it landed on the stadium. True. Yeah. Yeah. True. 
yeah, anything else? And uh, I guess if not, we can we can switch over to to the interview. Hello and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Today we have a very special interview for everyone. So you might know the old saying, what's better than interviewing a five-time Olympian? Well, interviewing two five-time Olympians. And today we're pleased to be joined with U.S. record holder in the 1500, 3K, and 5K, five-time world champion and Olympic silver medalist, Bernard Legat, and five-time Olympian who's just returned back to the States from competing in the men's marathon at the Tokyo Olympics, Abdi Abdurrahman. So thanks for joining, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for having us. Yeah. So, so I want to start off with a question. I think you know there might be a lot of people wondering. So I've heard through some sources that you guys were pretty fierce rivals back in the day. Now friends, but <laughs> back in the day you were fierce rivals. Um, so actually, I was going to share this. I was sent this picture the other day in uh, anticipation. We'll throw this obviously on our on our Instagram and our social media, but there's you two in 1997 at the West Regional Cross Country Championships. Um, Abdi running for U of A, which is obviously the better choice, and um, Kip running for Washington State. So I think the question here is, who's faster? Oh. At that time, we know who's faster. You just, uh. just said, it's, it's simple. Okay. We know who's fast. At that time, you know who's fast. He, he was a miler. He was trying to run the cross country. He was coming to my territory. So I'll, I'll just make sure I let him know I was the boss. No, and he really that did. Time, yeah. um, he, he showed me <laughs> that he was the boss in town because that race right there was here in Tucson. But a week later, actually before that, I had won the Pac-12s, but I had won the Pac-12s. And so he gave it to me here at home. He's like, no, you beat me. I think you were third in Pac-12, 1997 in Stanford. And then we came over here, and in that picture there, this after like was like I'm home, and everybody was calling him and cheering yeah. him. Yeah, if it was in Pullman, Washington, I would have beaten him in, you know. But it was home in Tucson. So to answer the question, he was the best guy uh, <laughs> yeah. in that picture. <laughs> so you, you guys know you must be fierce rivals when you don't know probably your own finishing, but you know what they finished, right? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. they finished third. <laughs> I was just yeah. make sure I'll. I was just, I just, only thing I remember I was in front of him. That's the one thing. And I remember I get in front of him that last like a 1200 meter. So, yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know what, though? I don't know what had ended up happening with me mentally, but I never beat him after that. All the races that I raced with him, I couldn't. Probably, you know, when they say somebody is like, you know, staying in your head, just rent free. He stayed in my head rent free, man. It's so crazy. <laughs> but yeah, he, he, I end up losing to Abdi every single time. Until like, I think we all did in cross country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That actually kind of touches on an interesting point for me. I'm coming at this from completely a non-runner's perspective, and I understand how important the tactics are within a race. But how much are you then responding to someone else, sort of someone else in the race, or how much is it a pre predetermined? This is the this is my race, and I need to run it. And how much are you keeping an eye on the people around you and thinking if this guy goes? If this guy does a quicker lap, then I need to keep up. Or, or... Uh, actually, you know, like that's a great question. Actually, and a lot of people don't understand that. But most of the time, most of the races we run, you compete with people because you know who is who, who is in the race, what their strength is, what their weakness is. 
and and something that to be aware of when you run in the race, especially like when I was running at the trials, just just I'm giving you an example. When I was running at the trials, I know my preparation leading to the trials was the best that I could be. Great training, everything, fitness was there. And I didn't want that race to be a sprint race, you know, just where everybody's on the race. And then you come to the, the last 800 meter and then some guys who are, who doesn't, who's, who didn't supposed to come with you at that point of the race there and they just out sprint you, take your spot. So, and and that's what happened to me and Bernard. I knew Bernard was a miler, to be honest. And when we were running cross country, I knew he ran like the mile to 800 meter. And I knew like I was better long distance running than him at that time. And he was training for the mile. So I just want to make sure the when the gun goes off on that race, I make sure I took him hard, you know, just like use my strength. So by the time we get to the finish line, he will finish the race, but he will have nothing left and he can use the kick. And I think that it helped him a lot too, you know, just like for us running with us, you know, he built that strength. So at the later stage of his career, when he moved, when he moved up to the 5,000, that helped him a lot. Right. Yeah, that is 100%. Um, you learn your, your competitors and then you try to also use your, what is best that you have. Like for Abdi now, he could be the guy that was a front runner. For me, I was a follower. I was the one that can track you down and hunt you down. If the pace gets slower, I'm going to get you at the end because at the end, it's going to be mental games. If Abdi did not leave me, like if it's, let's say like 5K, if you didn't leave me like and we only have one lap to go, if you are smart, dust me early. But if not, one lap to go, I'm looking at like just one lap. So adrenaline and speed, that raw speed, just would just then I would beat uh, people like Abdi, you know, if that was the case. But if the tactics is that you know Abdi would realize, okay, keep this in the race. I'm going to burn those legs early, most of the time, and I believe that is what he actually realized in that cross country because probably they let me just run in Stanford like in '97 there, and they thought ah he's nothing. But then at the end they did not take the pace to kill my legs early. So it is a matter of knowing the you know the the competitors and knowing what you're good at and so you use that to your advantage so for me if it was slow i would love it so much like okay come on go even slower because at the end of the day you know at the end of the race i'm going to be the one that is going to uh, out kick you off so yeah tactics works a lot uh, in those situations and so then what do you do if you're in your situation and you want to slowly run race and you want to use that kick if the race is fast and your legs are getting burned out is it just a case of there's not much survive. I can do here or just yeah, survive. survive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just survive. You like basically hold on to it as long as you can. But then also then the mental toughness also comes in there. Like positive, you know, you give uh, talking to yourself, like, you know, positive talking to yourself, you know, that feedback, like, okay, you're feeling good now. Breathe hard. Okay, breathe nicely. And, uh, you know, they're just like, a, you know, one yard away from you. So they are still here with you. Okay, the heel is coming. Okay, attack it nicely and all that stuff. So if you keep telling yourself that and also you don't even think about anything else, get into that zone. I usually, like in that situation, I just look at somebody's bib number at the back, you know, and just at the back number. And I'm, I don't look at the times. I don't look at the splits. I don't look at who is who. But if Abdi is the guy that I want to chase down, I just like look onto him and I just go with it. But it's always the hardest one uh, because it starts hard and you still have to run faster that's why most of those cases i could not uh, out sprint him at the end because he basically wore out my legs at earlier enough so 
it is you survive. Uh, you you hold on to that pace as long as you can and make sure that you, you you stay in the race, stay engaged all the time. Once you disengage, you can actually like instead of even finishing second, you finish like ten or even DNF uh, to not finish. Great. I, I, so Abdi, I know you have to to run. So we'd love to hear about your experience at this Olympics and you know maybe how. You know, you know your race and how it went, but also the overall experience of the Olympics with you know the setting of of the pandemic and everything, and how it compared to all the previous Olympics you've been to. Uh, you know, to, to be honest, you know, uh, Olympics always Olympics to be honest, but this was like it was unusual Olympics as we all know because of the pandemic, you know, COVID nineteen, and just and I'll, and I'll, and also I applaud the Japanese, you know, what they did and. They pulled out, you know, just it wasn't the easiest Olympics to host, to be honest, because of the pandemic. Also just, and it was different from that Olympics because of the, there's no spectators. The first Olympic, like, I don't know, I don't know, the, okay. the first, yeah, yeah. The ever, like, <laughs> never have any spectators, empty yeah. stadium, you know, to be honest. Like, it was, it was totally different. Like, for us, was for us, for me as a marathon runner, we have a lot of spectators to be, even though the Japanese government told, like, people not to come out for, for the race, but I'll, everybody came out and supported. To be honest, the the streets was full, and 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 I think it was the second, like a second rate, second like a the the second highest rating uh, TV events or during the Olympics, just behind the Japanese uh Japanese uh, baseball. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you know it was amazing, but just for me, my experience was wonderful. You know just. We were in a hotel most of the time, you know, like we, instead of being in the Olympic Village, you know, socializing with people, you know, just going out to eat. You know, Olympic is all about the experience. But this one, we were more in the lockdown. Basically, we were in, a, in, a, in quarantine. We could not leave our hotel. We could not meet them with the locals. We just go out, eat, come back, training, and we don't see anybody. You can't go to town. You can't even go. To, there was a gas station across the street from our hotel. We couldn't even go to that gas station to just buy water or anything just they won't even let you do anything so you know it was different and you know, it was totally different for me I've been to four Olympics before that they were wonderful every Olympics was have these unique events but I was looking for I was looking forward to going to Japan you know just learning about their culture eating the Japanese food you know I had a sushi in the US <laughs> but like, it's totally different you know I want to eat authentic Japanese food too bad we couldn't do that but and now one of my goals is to go back to Japan just to experience the culture, you know, because I have seen it, you know, I have seen the pictures, I've seen the people, and I talk to people and support where, where we were. They say it's known by, for its food, and they have a great food, you know, just like a lot of great restaurants. So hopefully in the future, I'm planning on going back to support just for the experience, to be honest. I'll go with you, man. Yeah, definitely. We'll we, we can all go. We like to eat. Yeah, we can go too. We'll yeah. How about we take a bit? We, we'll do a road tripping, man. Yeah. See if we can survive. We'll maybe as, take a boat, man. We'll take a boat. Yeah. As, as long as no running's involved. Yeah. Yeah. Only if we go back to Osaka, you know, we can go to Osaka and then Sapporo and Tokyo. That's good. But we have to, we must go to Osaka. Yeah, you like Osaka because you have a great experience there. I agree. Yeah. Double, double, <laughs> yeah. better than that. Yeah, better. Osaka was amazing. So it was great.
Because, Abdi, you mentioned water bottles there, and this feels like a slightly wasted question on all the amazing insights you could give us on Olympic experiences and running. But obviously one of the major storylines that came out of the marathon in the Tokyo Olympics was the French marathon runner Morhad Abduni, uh, Abuni, sorry, who knocked over the water bottles. He insists that it was accidental, and I just wanted to get your take on whether or not you did think it was a kind of tactic within the race. And also, is that the kind of thing that happens frequently in, in high-level running? You know, to be honest, like, I'll take for his words to be, I'm, I'm one of those people when someone say they did, it just happened for accidentally, I'll take for his words. Some, there's a lot of dairy people, you know, sports, like, don't, don't ever think like marathon is not a contact sport. There's, it is contact. People push and shovel each other. You even seen the guy fell down at the first hundred meter. One of the Kenyan guy and he bruised and he dropped out. You know, I saw his knees and he was one of the favorite. You know, it's a contact sport. Some people do drop the other people's like water bottles but for him to be honest like i'll take his words and i don't think he did it for you know just intentionally because some maybe he was just trying to grab and sometimes it's hard to grab like we're trying to grab like you're running so fast you're trying to grab one quickly but you just push everyone and if he did that there were so many water stations there even if he if he did that one it wouldn't make any difference because we have a water station like every 2k or a k and then we have our own refresher like uh, tables where it's not 11 of them and usually have like a normal marathon we have eight of it so i'll think it was i don't i don't think he did attention even if he did attention it wouldn't make any any races different to be honest because that we have so many wire stations if he was trying to get people's head he would have did all the water <laughs> tables so go ahead go ahead I was going to say, he would have to knock over every table, basically, if he really wanted exactly, to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. There's another, there's another water table less than another, like, maybe a mile, because it was so hot, so they have to have so many water stations. See, for me, is like, okay, I, when I saw that, I honestly, like, wanted to just, like, agree for the first time with Piers Morgan. Uh, what do you call them? Uh, I don't know if we can block it or we just leave it like that. And, and I'm like, you can say it. Yeah, he's like really the, the, the biggest dick of the, you know, the, of the Olympics, you know, because here's my thing. I actually got upset. Um, Abdi is really nice. He's a good man. I'm actually, I feel like I have a, a reasonable thing also to think about is where, where is that humanity in you that you feel like, okay, if somebody is really, if you are knocking all those water in front of you to go get that last one there, come on. I think to me, you can and say, you know, it was an accident. I, I don't buy that. And so I'm like, Piers Morgan just hit it right. I mean, he, he, he really did it. Um, and well, he explained to it, but then, oh, has he been sorry about what he did? Because I've, wh why is it just only him? What about another yeah. athlete? If it was, well, okay, this water was maybe put together. You know, they, you can put like so close. Yeah, it, you can knock one or two before that. But to me, knocking a lot of it like that and not just one station, uh, how can that be an accident? Um, I think uh, that is, I like Abdi and you know, he's a nice man, but I, I felt like he, uh, he, he should be bad for, I feel like he should be actually bad from the Olympics. He should not, he, oh. he should not run in 2024. Oh. He should oh, not run yes. in 2024. <laughs> wow. he, should not, he should not even come to LA. <laughs> I, I mean, they are opposing views. We were, yeah. we... so you just think he didn't really, it was the Olympic spirit, a lot of people said. That, like, he wasn't staying true to the spirit of the games. Exactly. 
if there was gamesmanship in it. Interesting opposing views. Okay. Yeah. We discussed yeah, it. We discussed it on a previous episode. Yeah. We thought we thought he did it on purpose, but obviously yeah, yeah. I took I his word. I took his word. When I saw it, like when I saw it, people sent me but People thought it was I didn't. One they told one of my friends did it actually. Like the guy, like the short guy from Belgium. The I silver medalist. Yeah, the silver medalist. Oh, he didn't he, win yeah. They think he did. He was the one who was doing, it. and I just and I saw the hand, and, and I saw just the hand was like this. But I just give it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's, okay just, that's just me, man. Yeah. And if he apologized and he said I didn't mean that, I said, okay. Because there's so much water. It wouldn't make any difference. Like, it wasn't but the spirit, the yeah, spirit, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like, like Samuel was talking about, yeah, is yeah. like, that is an Olympic thing to do. Because yeah, yeah. we're here to celebrate humanity. You're yeah. Supp- yeah, yeah. To show that brother. Think about uh, Isaiah Jewett with Nigel Amos in the, in the, yeah. in the 800 meters. Joe, I mean, the American was tripped from behind. I mean, I don't even understand why he was not even ad- advanced to the semifinal. Yeah. And also, look, forget about that, but for him to stand up like this, almost just reaching out to him, hugging, and then jogging together, that to me, uh, without anybody blaming anyone, to me, that is the Olympic moment. Yeah. And, and, and it is in contrast with what this guy did, because yeah. now you're selfish. Okay, if I can knock in here, somebody else is going to be like so thirsty, and then I have a chance because I'm hydrating. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't like that myself. I trust me. If my son was to do that, I'd be like, son, you know, you're not going to eat for a day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, um, kind of getting back to what you said with with the great Olympic moments. I mean, both of you have been, you know, to five Olympics each maybe give us, you know, one or two of your highlights of your greatest experiences at, you know, what, what Olympics did you have the most fun at or the, the best experience or, or be a part of the best Olympic moment, like you're saying? Uh, let me go first. I think okay. I've, I, will, I have to say it always the first one, man. My first Olympics was my best experience, to be honest. Like, that's like when the expectation was, you know, like, so high, you know, that's your first Olympics, you know, just, I was like a 22 years old, I think 22, 21, uh, you know, just, we always watch, uh, at that time, we, you always watch uh, Olympics on TV, but that time I was in there, and that was my first time, I was so happy, so it was a dream come true. My second favorite Olympics have to be, I would say Tokyo, I have to give it to Tokyo, to be honest. Just making it happen after a year later and what's going on in the world for us like and trying to get that kind of normality you know just like do what we we don't let the pandemic win and just you know just shut everything down but like that's that's like there's a cup there's a two three weeks that we can all be happy and be watching olympic on tv and just feel normal and just to be a part of that was amazing thanks yeah so abby um hit it on that first one uh that is when you feel like, okay, I've made it, you know? Even if I don't go anything, if I don't do anything in my career as a runner ever, yeah. I'm done. I'm an Olympian, baby, I'm done. So all you have to do is just like, uh, if I can celebrate now, hey, I can celebrate all I want because I'm an Olympian. And so for me, I went in there as somebody who, I wasn't so sure if I was gonna even medal. And then to come back, you know, being a bronze medalist on my first Olympics, that was that was the biggest one for me and because Abdi gave two i'm going to go to london 2012. that is when i thought okay this is going to be my last one i've you know i've had a good run you know in 
2008, and 2012, I'm like, this is it. I'm going to, this is my last one, and I'm going to retire. So I enjoyed that so much. And what made it special is even like the closing ceremony for me, um, where I know this is my it. And just the fact that we were all mingling with all the athletes in the whole world, in America here, we are me we're basically in an opening ceremony with basketball players. I remember yeah. we were there, like basketball players, volleyball players, all these people. And then, you know, you, you're looking at like somebody like KD right sitting next to you. And then Kobe Bryant is just yeah. right here. I mean, like, Kobe, can I take a picture with you? Hey, yeah, come on. That to me was like, I'm done with the Olympic movement. And that was the best finish. Even though I did not medal, I was fourth. But that was it. In fact, I don't know why it comes down to that closing ceremony for me because it's a closing in the end of a chapter. But then, well, four years later, 2016, <laughs> you know, I made it again. So <laughs> after, after really closing it in London, I'm done. But then, you know, you know like Abdi was talking about earlier, it's like once you experience it, it gives you that motivation to one more. Um, it's like really there's no end. Even after Rio, I thought that was it. But then I end up like running with Abdi the in the marathon. Trials. You showed up the I showed up. <laughs> I showed up. I'm like, can I still get one more? Because there's something beautiful about making it. And just like once you get into the one, you want to experience a lot all the time. And uh, there's always that drive. Somebody who has the drive to go to the Olympics, you could always, um, you know, do your best in there and you can get it in. So that's what has been driving us. But I know for sure I did not make this one, so I'm done. Um, so I'm now a coach, you know, you're there here. And so, yeah. And Abdi, do you, do you have one more in you? Oh, man. You asked me that question today, so I do have one more. Like, just <laughs> come back again. Like, I'm going to have a different answer for you if you're asking me next year. So, you okay. know. For me, I'm just like at one year out of time to be. I'm just focused on this year, you know, Boston, hopefully. Just a one year out of time. So just I'm not like, you know, just for now, yes. Uh, maybe I'm looking for one because just the way I ran, the way I felt, you know, and, and at the end of the day, no one knows you, no one knows your body the way you do. So for me, I feel like I still have a lot in the tank, you know, just because of my training and how I feel recovery so you know maybe i have one more we'll see how, how the next year goes and after that one year out of time and guess what Abdi? it's just only three years from now yeah. exactly that's you know, and that's, that's also what yeah, gave me another hope you know yes. What I'm yes yep less than three years actually Let before the trials is two years yes so there you go three. yeah pencil should it in back? should i come back yeah man come back man <laughs> Ten thousand still there man Ten thousand, no man. These kids are running fast right now. I'm not going to even mess. You with still them. got that speed, man. You can handle <laughs> six miles. Okay, you did twenty six miles. Six miles was okay. <laughs> and Abdi, I have the most basic question that I could think of for you. But okay. how tired do you get when you're running a marathon? Uh, you get tired. Yeah, in marathon you go places that you never been before, especially when it's not going well. And you know you go some dark places, man. Especially for me it was the this marathon, the one in. Uh, just a recent the Tokyo Marathon, it wasn't it wasn't the best, you know, it was, but the main goals for me was just to finish, you know, I was hurting, I was like almost dropped out, you know, just, and you just run, and I just told myself, just run the mile that you're in at that time, so just like, whatever happens, happen next mile, so that's how, that's how the time went by, but you know, it's, it's real tiring, and also like when things are going well, and you're running well, and you know, just you see the clock is just like, it's nothing, man. It's, it's the best feeling. You can go the best feeling to the 
worst feeling. So marathon is just is a roller coaster. It's a love and hate relationship. So for me, um, to answer that question, even though it was directed to Abdi, at the end of the marathon for me, I just want somebody to give me that t-shirt that says running sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I can wear it for a month. <laughs> because yeah. and if that is uh, that is the feeling I get after I'm like, it's painful. I'm, I, you know, it's painful to do anything. Man, I'm like, yeah, I want that t-shirt for a month uh, while I recover. So yeah, it is, it's something else, man. After, after, oh, you know, Mark, after the marathon. Whenever you cross that so, finish that marathon, you retire usually. That's what I tell people. You retire for a couple hours. You don't even think about running. You say, why am I doing this? I say, I'm done. I, I tell myself that after Tokyo, but after I take a nap, woke up next day, I was refreshed and I was just say, okay, I'm ready for Boston now. And before that, say, I'm not even running Boston. No more marathon for me. Yes. I think that's probably for a lot of our listeners who are not five-time Olympians, very reassuring to hear people who have achieved as much as both of you have still feel as if just at the end of it, you just never want to run again. Now, now Kip, that brings an interesting question. In, I mean, you, you know, hold the U.S. record in the 1500, and I can only imagine how painful that race must be to run. But do you still think, you know, running the, the further distances like the marathon is – that much more painful than having to run almost, uh, you know, almost a three-quarter full sprint for four laps? Absolutely. Any day I would rather, I mean, I would take running a mile at like the like sprint pace and it's just only four laps than to go 26.2 miles with pain and heels and all that stuff. But also there's also something that draws you back to it after you finish, like after he's talking about, and that is the weird part. Like you finish this race, you feel like you're wasted. You spent completely. And then suddenly, before you know it, you're out lazing up, running, and getting faster and faster in workouts, and you get back to it again. So it is, uh, it, it is different because it's almost that relationship that you had, and then it went sour, and then you rekindled it again, and then it's, you, know, you just want to be with that. You, know, yeah. that you, you have to reestablish that relationship again. It, it is a weird thing. But, um, yeah, I would take 1,500... Uh, mile at, 5, at, at or even 5,000. So I, I had a question. You, you mentioned, like, you both mentioned how it is a contact sport and whether there's gamesmanship in it or the tripping. How do you, do you ever train with your competitors and, you know, to an extent spar with them, like, before the big races? Like, or is it very much you just train on your own, you train with the US team, and then you just meet them in that one-time thing at the Olympics or the Worlds? Or, or do you kind of, you know, coexist during the whole time and learn off each other, basically? Um, there's that kind of co coexistence a, a bit in a way, because as we train, you know, we have races and meets ahead of time. So sometimes we have races in America and you know, we travel to Europe. We compete with the same people that you're going to meet at the high level, uh, at the World Championships, at, at, at the Olympics. So you're going to meet, see these people. And most of the time you... Sometimes I have to run with one once with that person to understand everything about them, um, their tactics, their the way they run, even if they're like how they they run is like how they, are they athletes that are like stick to one lane. There's some that we know already. They are like notorious in terms of going in and out of lane one. Before you know it, it's just jumping onto the outer lane. There's crisscrossing in there. And think about this: if you're 
12 athletes in, in there. They have like 20, you know, 24 legs, just like crisscrossing like that. And it can be a dangerous situation. So what we do is to avoid that is we kind of learn how somebody runs and you always have a safe spot that you establish in your training and in your competition. For me, my safe spot is just outside of lane two. It doesn't matter if anybody else is out there. I will save safe spot, lane two, unobstructed. So if something happens from the inside, well, when we see a lot of faults, it happens on the inner lane. So if that happens, you're out. Nobody's going to touch you. So you kind of have to practice that because, and you anticipate. So I always tell athletes, when they ask me, what are you thinking the day before? I'm thinking about those situations. When the race goes well and the race goes bad. Well, how, when it goes bad is when you get tripped. How do you handle that? How do you get rid of it before even start, and it happens? Those are the things that we think about it. So yes, we get to meet these athletes before, and there are some that are fresh. You have never met them before, but you kind of have to use your own tactics, staying out of trouble in order for you to avoid something that like that happening. So, so I always think this is an interesting question because it doesn't always correlate with with what you see on the screen. What do you think is your greatest race you've ever run? When when you look back on your career, what do you think that's my number one race? My number one race was in 2004, uh, about three weeks before going into Athens Olympics. I, you know, basically I was number two in the country, in the world, and we had only one person that nobody had beaten him. Um, oh, sorry, he had lost to Noah, a Kenyan at the Olympics, a silver medals, medalist and a world record holder, Hijam El Girush of Morocco. So. Leading up to 2020, uh, 2004 Olympics, I wanted to be, win the Olympics. I wanted to be better than uh, third spot. I knew Noah had retired because of injury. And so it was only Hijam El Guru, the world record holder, and myself. And Hijam had not lost a race since that one race only at the Olympics. So I thought in order for me to beat this guy, I got to train hard. I'm going to give 100%. So three weeks before that, I basically ran the best race of my life in Zurich, Switzerland. And I beat Isham El Garouche and running also one of like the second fastest time of my career, which was 327 for the 1500 meters. So that was one of the big ones. And that gave me confidence going into Atlanta Games that I've actually beaten the king. You know, everybody calls him King, you know, King Isham. So we beat it. I've already like, you know, showed the king who I am. And then now I'm going to do the same thing in Athens. And uh, the rest was history. Uh, it didn't happen that way, but the king showed me the other way. So I was second to him. <laughs> but again, it's just a matter of really learning your competitor. So he knew his weaknesses back then. Or one, I don't know if I want to, um, one thing that he told me is like, me and my coach, we realized that you beat me in Zurich, but we knew it was in your head. So we didn't let that get in our head, but it's in your head that already I've already beaten him. So now all I got to do is run a certain way and that is like but you lost it because you thought you're going to win the same way you won in zurich because i kicked that 80 meters to go but then he waited until 50 while mine have already been running 30 meters he waited so as i got ahead of him he had more because he started late and um, that's how he won and he told me it was a tactic because i knew what you did in zurich i'm like okay so that's one of my uh, that's one of my all-time favorite uh, event uh, or a race ever besides Olympics yeah that's such great insight into the the mindset of a mind you know like him thinking what you're gonna think about what you're gonna think I mean that's it's it's crazy to see how yeah. intricate that is that's great 
And then if you could have one, and maybe you don't, maybe it's just you're able to process everything. If there's one race from your career that you could have again, is there one time when you just feel as if something tactically went wrong or that you just kind of wasn't quite right on the day? You know, I always volunteer that question, uh, that in one of my interviews, but then because nobody has really asked me the same way you did. I've been waiting for that for a long time. And so you nailed it. So one of the things that I always regret and feel like if I was to ever do it again, if you put me in that race right now, if I had that shape that I had it a while ago, would be the mile. The mile I have 347 in the mile, but guess what happened? On the time, on the day or the, the weekend that Hisham El Garouche, again, that King Hisham, and Noah Ngeng, who won the Olympics in 2000, decided to run in the mile in Rome. I decided, nah, I'll take a week off so that I can race with them the following week. So by me choosing that, and my agent was telling me, oh, you know what, um, we will go to uh, run 1500 with Hisham and Noah in Rome. And I'm like, and you know what, though? What about if I train and then get ready when they do the 1500? Because mile for me is not a big thing, but that was the only regrettable thing that I ever did. Like skipping that race when he ran a world record. Both ran under the old world record. They have a 343 for the mile. And here I am sitting in Tübingen, Germany with the shape that I had over 344 or even better. And I'm seeing that on television, people running and I'm in that shape. And so it's hard to get to that level ever again, or to even get the race that is set up like that where people are going to go to a world record. And not just anybody going to world record, it is Olympic world, uh, gold medalist and a silver medalist. And I'm here as a bronze medalist, but I decided to take a week off. That is the, big, that is the biggest thing that I've like, if I was to switch now, my, world, my, my personal best would not be 347 would be faster than that by a lot. I, I think what's so amazing about your career too is, is I mean, your 1500 time is, is amazing. And then you go all the way up to 3K, 5K, and even running 10Ks. I, I mean, how, how are you able to train for races that maybe people don't realize are so different, but you know, running a 1500 versus running a 5K, it, it's, it's gotta be very different. I mean, how are you able to train for that speed, but also that endurance and run them both in like the same Olympics, for instance. Yeah, the key is on the coach. Um, the coach, if the coach knows you and knows your plan and knows your strengths and things that he, some people call it weaknesses, but for him and myself, we call it the areas that we need to improve on. So, and so w once you know that, for me, I was the guy that could handle quality. I could ha handle faster tempo runs, uh, short, long runs, like short, short runs, like six miles, all out. I could run that under 30 every given day uh, for, for 10K. You know, I would even run 28 in workout. And so that was already something that he decided he's good at that. So now we're going to make sure that he gets races to be, to prepare him for this kind of, um, you know, just, we're preparing for those kind of races because my races were high level most, most of the time. I chose races that were like high, high level. It was Diamond League or Golden League most of the time. And when you are in that, those races, you've got to be prepared 100%. So coach was able to give me the workouts that were really intense because he knows I can have that intensity. And that made things easier for me from being a 1500 meter runner going up to the 5,000 meters, 
5,000 because I also train as a 5,000, as if I'm a really 5,000 meter runner because I had my speed. So the endurance that I have and the speed I get in my tempo runs was able to get me to be a really good 1,500 meter runner. But maybe not exceptional 15, I mean 5,000 meter runner. But I was okay. Even running that 1253, there are some athletes that in any given season that are really young and fast can run under, you know, 1250. But to me, to even get that was a huge thing going from being a miler. So it is a matter of having a coach that understands you, understands your strengths, and then we capitalize on those strengths and also capitalize on, I mean, and then also on the areas that needs improvement, we just work on those. And mine was endurance. And so he gave me the workouts that would help me uh, be strong all round in the, uh, the five, I mean, the 15 all the way to 5,000 meters. So just to add to that then, yes. did it did it change from the indoor to the outdoor then, the training and the preparation, or is it identical? Like what you do outdoors, Ooh. you just do the same training indoors, or are there any tweaks that you would do with the training change slightly? Yeah, so we could tweak indoor to mean uh, lesser volume, but just a few things that are shorter, but also high quality, because leading into indoor, you had all this fall to do what I was saying earlier, like the harder run, long runs, mild repeats that are fast, long runs in hill session, every single thing you can think of to prepare you to be to run so good in fall, I had it. So now when it comes to indoor season, all I have to do is like dial down on those high mileage, but then do the small things that like speed workouts and then, uh, you know, threshold runs that, are, you know, are very, uh, you know, but we're no longer going back to like 13 miles or something like that, but dialing it down, because also the distance was mostly the mile and the 3,000 meters if I go higher, uh, longer. So it was just a putting, dialing back on training and capitalize on working on the small explosive things. And I loved indoor that way. And, uh, and, and that's why we were very successful, you know, especially running Melrose games, going in there, running 1,500, I mean, the, the, the mile every single time. So we were preparing ourselves more than what other people do so because some people are like yeah indo is kind of slow i mean there's nothing really to gain in there but for me i was preparing for it so that i can use that to benefit me in that uh, indoor season then when it comes to outdoor season we jump into outdoor season where we have to rebuild it again but at that point you have the speed so you kind of go back into endurance so you keep your body in this continuous circle of improvements of going back to the things that you know you, you need for that particular season and then Role adding other things that like hill session for endurance and also gym workouts and all that stuff. So to just get you ready for everything. And I know, I know you're starting to run a little bit short on time. I had one question though, relating obviously, sort of, I guess, midway through your career, you switched from representing Kenya to representing the United States, Yes. which kind of been an easy decision. And I was suppose for the most part, it had a lot of benefits in terms of perhaps your long-term life post-racing and, and access to facilities and, and all sorts of training. But obviously, Kenya has such a long tradition of long distance, middle distance and long distance runners. Uh, did it in any way hurt your career? Because I would have thought there is a, there's a kind of team aspects at some of the meets in terms of having other runners either work with you in terms of pace setters or running as a group. Did switching from the U.S. from Kenya to the U.S. at every moment, you kind of feel like you had fewer teammates around you and sort of less help in a race than you did before? No, actually, it, um, it's funny because... Uh, a lot of people thought maybe that would be the dynamic that was going to develop by me changing it. But actually, in the outside, that is what people might think. But deep inside, I get a lot of respect for them because 
when I started my career, I was of respect. Respect the athlete that is there. Respect those who are faster than you. Respect those who are not faster than you. Because they're going to get you later on. Or you never know your path. You know, you might be good this year and then you get something that is going to sideline you for the rest of your career and you're out. And then then basically you become somebody who nobody likes. So for me, I had those things ahead of time. And so the relationship, in fact, I had Kenyans when I was an American being my pacemakers nonstop from 2004 all the way until the end of my career. Pacemaking for me, Kenyans. And so when what, what, what people think and maybe assume, actually it's not even there because if anything, they come to me it's like, we want to be like you. When I was growing up, man, I was a primary school kid. I had my newspaper, the newspapers all over in my wall and you were in those newspapers, like pictures of you running and winning. And so there was an amazing um, relationship that I had with them because at the end of the day, we meet in the circuit and we are talking the language. You know, we are talking about stories in the village. And for me, having been removed for a while in those stories made me even drawn more onto sitting down on the table and eating with them and kind of bringing me back to when I was young. Even though these guys are telling me stories of young age, uh, they, you know, their age right now, I'm like, I can relate to that. And so it's so amazing how actually I got more help from the Kenyans after I... Um, when, when I, after the switch. To me, it didn't even seem like there was even a problem. Even the Ethiopians, uh, you know, I had Ethiopians being my pacemakers all the time. And it is the relationship that you build as a person. Probably, if it was another person, you just grow a big head, and now I'm American, I get this, you don't have this, I got this, you're lacking that. Then that would create other things. But for me, I just wanted to be the person. Nothing changes me. So at the point where it almost became, in other, other athletes, but not is the same thing, but different uniform. Uh, but for me, it is more than that, more than a uniform, because this country that I'm representing, I got 100% loyalty, because from 2000 all the way to 2004, my loyalty was in for Kenya, no other place. And then now, when I switch, my loyalty is not is, is undivided, just one nation right now, competing for the United States. So, but for others, it'd be like, he's still the same. But for me, Things are different because I look at it like I was 100% representing Kenya and I want to be the same thing with this new country. And if I can do more to empower people in Kenya, to empower the young ones in America here for future generation, that was uh, something that I wanted my legacy to be. And, uh, and, and that's why I got respect from everybody. But yes, being an American was a hard decision to sell it to my dad. My dad is the guy who's like, so you mean you're going to be American? You'll never come back home? I'm like, I'm going to come back, dad. Don't worry. And so... Now that if he gets to fly to the United States to come and meet me and my brother and my sister and my kids, he's like, this is not bad. I like it. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so I, I actually just had one more question. Um, so recently, I think this was maybe a few years ago, you were actually a pace setter uh, for the Nike Break 2 Marathon, correct? Yes. Uh, so... so how is that experience, and do you think there will ever be someone who can naturally break the two-hour mark in a marathon in, let's say, 20, 30 years from now? Or will it have to be that super controlled setting you know, with expert pacemakers and optimal wind conditions and everything? Oh, I believe there would be somebody even before that. Um, even in 15, the next 15 years, we could be having somebody who could break it without any of this uh, fun and uh, like having that kind of setup that we had for Elliot. Um, but it has to take somebody like Elliot. You know, if anybody was going to try, you've got to be, you have to have everything that Elliot ha ha has. Hard work, down to earth, 
He has a purpose every single time he lays that shoe. He knows it. He knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's sending to the young generation and everybody in the world. So you got to be like that. So I believe if we have somebody like mm -hmm. Elliot, I don't know where this person is going to come from, but trust me, we're going to have him in, I mean, soon. I mean, th with the technology going on, with the, I mean, with the shoes, with um, athletes getting more help in terms of uh, training equipment and facilities and having things that maybe the older generation did not get. I mean, and having people like Helliot who have shown everybody, like, you know what, he has that thing in him that says no human is limited. So he has shown that it can be done. And I did it. So guess what? Somebody else could come and do it. So I believe once one person does, just the same thing that um, uh, Sir Roger Bernister did in the uh, in the mile, bringing four. Though, so guess what? Um, people thought if you do it, you're gonna die. So Elliot has shown, like you know, you can do it actually, and you cannot die. I'm still alive. So it is just a matter of when that athlete that has everything that Elliot has mentally everything that, uh, you know, in order for you to do something like that. So I believe the future is bright in, uh, you know, to, to, when you look at things like that. Who would have, for example, say, okay, the Norwegian athlete is going to break the 110 hurdles uh, world record at the Olympics just the other day. You would only imagine of other countries, but wait, somebody came from Norway and he did this? So surprises can happen. And so we're going to have these kind of uh, surprises in future as well, having people running uh, without any setup, just but we have normal pacemakers who are finishing the race as well, they will be able to do that. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, I know Abdi left, but I want to stick up for him. I mean, Abdi has a book called Abdi's World. Where's Where's your book? When, when are we going to get your book? <laughs> um, it is working pro in process. Yes. Okay. There we go. Yeah, it's it's Great. Thank you so much. Great. Yeah, thank I appreciate you. Yeah. guys. You know, this is awesome. And uh, so, Frank, you are in town now, right? Tucson or no? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm a professor right. here, yep. Yep, I know. Yeah, man. We'll so, see. yeah, let's catch up sometime. And, uh, you know, if you play golf, let me know. We could go out to that. All right. Perfect. We all play golf, so we have a perfect foursome right there. <laughs> Boom. We all just right. have to get them to come. We just have to get them to come from Europe. So. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, yeah. But, you know, don't invite Abdi, though. He can caddy. <laughs> Not a good golfer? Yeah, you know, like, yeah, he, you know, I would say, like, 99.9%, .9 he's going to miss the ball. <laughs> oh, actually, no, we will bring him so he can actually drive the cart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Oh. Yeah, perfect. Yes, all right, perfect. All right, guys, thank you it's so a much. Pleasure, Samuel, Edward, Frank. It's really awesome to uh, to talk with you guys. And uh, yeah, let's do uh, let's let's catch up. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Bye.